Father, your Son is our shepherd. Through him, you care for us. This evening, Lord, I pray that we would actually hear your heart. We would hear the care of your Son for us. Amen. Seems to me that the quickest way to make y'all uncomfortable tonight would be to take Acts 4 and begin to talk about everybody sharing their things and us living in common. It's one of those passages that Americans are a little uncomfortable with. Actually, I'm not going to talk about that. Some of y'all are like, phew. I want to start with Ezekiel 34 and sort of bounce between these passages. In Ezekiel 34, we see God's assessment of the leaders of his people. And the effective summary is that they have been rotten shepherds. And because they've been rotten shepherds, he says, I'm going to come and remove you, and I will be shepherd to my people in your place. In verses 2 through 4, we see his assessment, the characterization of their leadership, their shepherding. He says, Son of man... Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. He says to them that you have fed yourselves instead of my sheep. You've neglected the weak and the sick and the injured. You've ignored those who are lost, who are wandering, who have strayed. You've ruled with harshness. In other words, leaders of Israel, you have been devoted to your own interests at the expense of my sheep. You've neglected and abused those that you were supposed to care for. It's fairly normal for people to be focused on themselves. It's fairly normal for people to be devoted to their own interest. And it's fairly normal for people to neglect those in need. In fact, we could say that in a society where everyone is pursuing selfish interest, it shouldn't surprise us that leaders are just the same. Their selfishness may be no different in quality than the selfishness of the average person, but the position of leadership, the power that they are given, magnifies that selfishness. The leaders were given a role to govern, to protect, to care for others. And when they act with selfishness, they abuse the position that God has given them. It's wrong for anybody to be selfish. But there's a particular accountability that God holds against the leaders when they take the position of care that he gave them and turn it into a position of self-centeredness. When we flip to Acts, we see a very different picture of leaders. Look in your order of service in verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed 
to each as any had need. These apostles are now the shepherds of the people. These leaders are receiving the gifts of the people. But unlike the leaders of Ezekiel's day, they do the opposite. They don't enrich themselves at the expense of others, but when the people bring them gifts, what they immediately do is bring it back out, give it to those in need, offer it to those who are hurting and suffering. Rather than pursuing their own interest, they're actually pursuing the interest of the weak. They're pursuing the interest of the hungry. They're pursuing the interest of those who are hurting. If self-serving leaders arise from self-serving societies, we see in Acts that generous and caring shepherds enable generous and caring societies. These two pictures of leadership that we see in Ezekiel and Acts, these two pictures of shepherding are effective descriptions of the leadership in the way of the world and leadership in the ways of the kingdom of God. The way of the world, leadership in the way of the world is effectively selfishness, self-centeredness. When everyone tries to protect his own interest, to look out for himself, it's natural that when people get power, they use it to enrich themselves, to perpetuate their own control. It's natural that they neglect those who are in need. It's natural that they not care for the poor and suffering. But leadership in the kingdom of God looks very different. Because leadership in the kingdom of God is the way of self-sacrifice. Rather than self-centeredness, leadership in the kingdom of God is the way of self-sacrifice. The leaders, the citizens of the kingdom of God are called. Look out for the interest of others. They're called to protect the weak. They're called to protect the vulnerable, to heal the sick, to find the lost, to bind up the broken. When they're given power, a true leader in the kingdom of God uses it to protect, to bless, to care for others. In those, in those societies, in that kingdom, the poor and the suffering end up being cared for. It's a very different picture than the one that Ezekiel saw. And the one that Ezekiel saw, the leaders of Israel were acting like pagan leaders. They were acting like they were members of the kingdoms of earth. They were enriching themselves at the expense of others, perpetuating their own power, refusing to care for the weak and suffering. And so God said bluntly, I will remove you. I will remove you from your office because you have abused it. And he said to them, I will come and I will shepherd my people in your place. But when God comes to shepherd his people, what we see in Acts is that he shepherds his people through his people. He's generous with his authority. He doesn't come in and clean house and then set himself in front and put everyone down below him. It's actually the reverse. He begins to call people into authority with them and give them his task of shepherding others. He promised to put in place of the leaders of Israel and give them the sort of authority and position that the leaders of Israel were meant to have. Jesus actually says this bluntly to the priest in a couple of parables when he says, God is going to remove you because you've been wicked tenants of this vineyard of Israel and he will put other leaders in your place. God blesses his people by giving authority outwards and puts other leaders in place 
who would actually protect the vulnerable, who would strengthen the weak, who would heal the sick, who would feed the hungry, who would find the lost. This, by the way, this promise of what he would do is exactly what we see happening in Acts. Because in Acts, Jesus actually hands over his authority to the disciples. He hands over his authority to them, and he gives them control of the kingdom. And what's amazing is that these leaders begin to do with the kingdom what Jesus did. They begin to feed the hungry. They begin to heal the sick. They begin to rescue the lost. They begin to teach the ways of the kingdom. In other words, the actions that we see in Acts 4 that make Americans so uncomfortable, those actions are the leaders of Israel finally doing what the people of Israel were supposed to do. Use your authority, use your position, use your wealth to care for those who are suffering. But this isn't just a description of the early church. This is actually what the church of all times in all places is called to be. The church is supposed to lead in the ways of the kingdom of God. The church, in other words, is supposed to be the place for sacrificial love and for service. This isn't an abstraction or a platitude. The church is actually supposed to be the place where vulnerable people get protected. This church is supposed to be the place where vulnerable people get protected. The church, this church, is supposed to be the place where sick people get healed. The church is supposed to be the place where spiritually and emotionally broken people are made whole again. This church is called to be that. The church is supposed to be the place where the lost are found. The church is the extension of God promising to be the shepherd to his people. It's his hands and feet in the world. Through it, he wants to do his work of shepherding. Jesus found the lost. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He delivered those who were enslaved. He taught the ways of the kingdom of God. These weren't abstractions. He found lepers and healed them. He talked to tax collectors and prostitutes and ate meals with them. He fed those who were out in the wilderness and starving. These weren't abstractions or platitudes. He actually did these acts of shepherding that God condemned the leaders of Israel for not doing. But then, as his body, he calls the church to continue those same acts. We, because we are his body, because we are his presence on earth, we are actually called to do that now. We are God's shepherd on earth, called to find the lepers of our day called to find the tax collectors of our day, called to seek the lost, to heal the sick, to bind up the broken, to lead them back into a place where they can be restored, fed, made whole again. In the church's faithful activity, God actually shepherds the world. He takes care of the world. And in the church's faithful activity, God increases the size of his flock. If you look throughout history, there are times and places where the church has done this incredibly well. There are places littered with hospitals founded by churches who sought to heal the sick. 
There are places where schools have been founded and established to take care of poor children. There's places where rescue missions have been built, where adoption agencies have been established. There are places where discipleship programs have been established, where missionaries have been sent to the under the ends of the world. There are times and places where the church has acted just like Barnabas, saying, I will give away my inheritance if it means the hungry get fed. The church has done this well at times and in places. There are times when the shepherding life of Jesus has flowed through the church into the world. But we all also know that there are times and places where the church has failed. Where rather than shepherding the poor, the church has amassed wealth for itself. Where rather than protecting the vulnerable, the church has sought control and power. There are times where the church has abused its own people and others, where it's been the antithesis of Barnabas. Rather than giving its wealth away for the world, it sought to amass wealth for itself. There are times, in other words, when the church has acted selfishly, like the kingdoms of the world, rather than like shepherds of the kingdom of God. But it isn't just the church as a whole. We all know that in our own lives, there are times when we have actually let the shepherding of love of Jesus flow forth well. Where we've seen people who are hurting and broken, and we've gone to them, protected them, taken care of them. There are times when we've been faithful to give people our resources and our time. There are times when we've acted like Barnabas, giving sacrificially so that others might be fed. But we also know that there are times when all of us have acted much more like the kingdoms of the world than the kingdom of God. Times when we've used our own position or wealth or abilities to benefit just ourselves. Times when we've effectively ignored those who are needy and suffering. Times when we've remained blissfully ignorant of those in our society who are deeply broken. There are times, in other words, where we have been the antithesis of Barnabas, that inheritance will stay in my own family and benefit just my family. If God's calling to the church is to be the extension of Jesus' shepherding in the world, why does it sometimes act like the wicked rulers of the world? If God's calling to the church is to be the extension of Jesus' shepherding in the world, why does it sometimes simply seek to enrich itself? Why does it ignore the cries of the downtrodden? But perhaps more purposefully for us tonight, if God's calling to us is to be the extension of Jesus' shepherding in the world, why are we oftentimes selfish? Why do we put ourselves first so easily? Why do we think about ourselves first? Why do we fail to notice when others are hurting all around us? These are hard questions to confront. In order to answer these questions, it's worth understanding where self-centeredness comes from. At its root, self-centeredness is nothing other than the lack of faith. At its root, self-centeredness is nothing other than the lack of faith. Self-centeredness springs from the fear that God will not actually give us what we need. We lack faith that He will offer us what we need. We lack faith that He will offer us the good that we actually desire. And so we seek to acquire it ourselves. This is where self-centeredness comes from. This is how it grows. I'm not talking just about money or food. 
We have more than enough of those things. But we think about influence or control, pleasure, honor, love itself. We spend our energy trying to acquire things for ourselves, very simply because we don't believe that God would show up and give us those things that we need. We spend so much energy trying to get those things for ourselves that at the end of the day, there's simply not energy, time, money left over for those who are hurting. We all know this, that most of our life revolves around providing for ourselves. And this incessant effort springs from the lack of faith that God would actually provide for us. You can see this in much more aggressive and ugly mentalities. People who actively and purposely say, I will protect myself first because I don't trust anyone else. That active and aggressive version of this usually comes when someone has been deeply wounded or broken and they don't have reason to trust anyone. But for most of us, that same sin in a much smaller, a much more civil form exists. And it exists very simply because we doubt whether God will really come through for us in the end. It breeds habits in us. Habits of not noticing others. Habits of my time is mine first, and I only give it away if there's a little bit left over at the end. Habits of restlessly trying to make our life better. Restlessly trying to make it better, it good enough. Fill it with pleasure and security and money. Treating it as our own for ourselves. Don't hear me saying that these good things, like pleasure, or even money, our time, our energy, our abilities are bad things. The point is that we use them so oftentimes out of fear that God will not actually provide for us. And when we use them out of fear, we end up using them for ourselves. So much of our pursuit of those good things springs from a lack of faith. That lack of faith can be revealed with the simple questions of, would I be content without this? If that person didn't respect me, would God be enough? If I didn't get this pleasure, would I be content in the Lord? Those sorts of questions begin to reveal how much we are trying to fill our life with good things because it is so difficult to have faith that God will give us all that we need. It's so difficult to have faith that God will actually be enough for us. The question would you be content in the Lord if everything else is stripped away? Is one that reveals how much we're trying to add to our life because we don't trust that the Lord himself is enough. It's hard to trust that God will be enough for us. It's hard to trust that God will give us all that we need. And so we resort to trying to satisfy ourselves on our own. And in the end, there's nothing left over to give sacrificially away to the other, to others. That's the point. This bad leadership that we see in Ezekiel flows from the lack of faith that God will provide, and it creates a sense of I've got to provide for myself because I don't know if God will, and at the end, there's nothing to give. It's hard to believe that God will be enough. But this is exactly where we need to hear Jesus' statement in John 10. Because his statement in John 10 comes crashing into our life, answering a question 
answering our doubts. Jesus in John 10 looks at us and he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Listen to his words. His desire is to be the one who feeds us. His desire is to be the one who guards us. His desire is to be the one who guides us. His desire is to be the one who heals us in our broken places. What would it mean to finally understand and trust that He will watch over your life better than you can? What would that do with the way that we used our time or our money if we finally came to terms with the fact that He will shepherd you better than you can shepherd yourself? What fears and anxieties would it release you from? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He was willing. He is willing to give everything for us. Again, let his statement sink in. He was willing to give everything. What would it mean to finally understand and trust that His love for you actually has no boundaries? What would it mean to come to terms with the fact that there is no hard end of His love? That He was willing to give everything and that there is no boundary at the far side? What would it change if you finally came to terms with the fact that God says, I was willing to give everything and therefore there is nothing that I will not provide now. What insecurities could we finally shed? He said to his followers, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. This statement is so beautiful. He knows us. He understands us. He pays attention to us. What would it mean to finally come to terms with the fact that God is not distant? That he actually knows you better than you know yourself? Think that thought for just a moment. What would it mean to understand, to trust, to know that God actually sees the recesses of your soul, that He actually knows you? The Lord Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. What peace would it actually bring if we were to come to terms with the fact that Jesus knows us better than we actually know ourselves. There is no place in our heart hidden from Him. What peace would that bring? As I wrestled with these passages this week, I kept coming back to this question. Why do I keep trying to be the shepherd of my own life? This was the question that kept ringing back in my ears. Why do I keep trying to feed myself? Why do I keep trying to protect myself? Why do I keep trying to incessantly provide for myself? After all, the track record is that I don't do a very good job of it. But why do I keep trying? What would it mean for me to back off? What would it mean for Jesus actually to take his role as good shepherd? What would it mean to trust that he would actually be the one doing the job that I cannot do, watching over my life? It's when the church is convinced that Jesus himself is its shepherd. 
It's when the church is convinced that Jesus Himself is its shepherd that it actually begins to take care of others. It's when the church is convinced that Jesus will actually protect it. It doesn't have to fear anything because if Jesus is shepherd, all is safe. It's when the church trusts that that it begins to take care of the broken in society. It's when the church actually trusts that Jesus will guide it, guard it, heal it, feed it, that it becomes possible to do what the apostles did, freely give it all away. One of my favorite stories in the history of the church is about this deacon in Rome named Lawrence. He was in a time of persecution, and the Roman emperor demanded from him the treasures of the church. And as archdeacon of Rome, he commanded the treasuries. The emperor wanted the wealth of the church. And so Lawrence went, took the wealth, and gave it all away. And then he gathered up all the poor that he could find, the lame, the crippled, and he walked back in before the emperor and he said, These, these are the treasures of the church. It's a powerful story. That sort of sacrifice and confidence only comes about in the church when we actually believe to the core of our being that Jesus can shepherd us better than we can shepherd ourselves. He will protect us. This is what he means when he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. Paul interprets this to say, he who freely gave up his son, will he not freely give us all things? If the greater gift has already been given, the Son of God himself, every lesser gift gets included. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, in Christ, all things are yours. There is no need for us to pursue our own because all things are already given in Jesus Christ. When the church comes to terms with the fact that Jesus is our shepherd, all things become possible. So the call for us tonight is not, oh, you bad people, oh, me bad person who've done such a bad job giving away your wealth to others and taking care of the poor. The call to us is come to terms with the fact that Jesus would actually shepherd you. Come to terms that he would watch over you. Come to terms with the fact that He knows you and loves you and would protect you. And in the security of His love, all things open up. We can freely give ourselves away because we don't need to protect ourselves anymore. We don't need to secure a good life for ourselves anymore. So this evening, as the whole service revolves around this theme of Jesus being the Good Shepherd, let Him speak to you. Let him speak to your soul that he would watch over you and hear his voice declaring you to you, I would heal you, I would guide you, I would feed you, I would protect you. Listen to his voice of tenderness and learn from our shepherd. Amen.